So let's go ahead and go there. Uh, a whole chapter in 45 minutes is, uh, that's some work. So we got some, uh, some work to do ahead of us, and um, I'm looking forward to it. James chapter 4. As you're turning there, I'll kind of just set it up briefly. James' purpose in this whole letter is really one, one reason. He desires to see the faith of the Christians that he's writing to come down to earth in practical ways. Um, he desires that the gospel would affect their personal life, that there be deep transformational change in their personal lives, as well as their relationships and their community, but there's some tension happening. There's some dysfunction going on. So we want to examine this in light of that. James chapter 4. James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. <clears throat> you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you don't ask. And when you ask, you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is an enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Don't speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we're going to go into such, a, such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord is willing, we will live and do this and that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for that you're here amongst us. Jesus, we desire deep change in our lives. If we're honest, we admit that there's dysfunction, there's tension between the commands of God and our own lives as well, and we submit that to you. We thank you that you're not ashamed in any way of our failure or of our, the things that would cause us shame, Lord. And we pray this morning that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit. We need you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, we ask for you to be glorified. Amen. I want to say hello to Ventura, by the way. 
Let's give Ventura a shout out. <clears throat> I want you to put yourself in a counseling setting right now. Because that's really what James assumes the role of in chapter 4. He's a pastor, but in chapter 4, he approaches the people almost like a counselor when he asks the question initially. So you tell me, what do you think is the cause of your dysfunction? What's the cause of fighting and quarreling and sin in your life? What would your answer be? What's your answer this morning as you think about issues in your own life, dysfunction, for most of us, we point to some external means. And if you are a stranger to trials or dysfunction or having to work through difficult relationships, either A, you've, you're very young, or B, you've never been married. Because for most all of us who have been married, you know that you work through areas. And typically, we put the problem on the other person or some external situation. James, as a counselor, asks them, what do you think is the problem? The question for James' audience, and I think the question for you and I that we have to ask is, do I really find myself becoming more joyful, more uh, courageous, and yet more gentle, more forgiving, more loving and less anxious, less jealous. The internal sins that James describes in verse 2 when he says, you have passions that are at war within you, you covet, you are jealous. Do these things describe you and me? Is my heart stirred up to the love of God with all my heart? To love people as I love myself? to be less hating on people or less coveting, wanting what you have, something that I don't. And the tension for you and I lies here is that James is very much a ground and pound pastor. He's very much throwing out exhortations over and over to the people because he desires to see deep change happen in their life and in their city, in their community. But the tension is it's not really happening. And for you and I, most of us, if we're honest, will admit as well that we see this tension in our own lives as well. We want deep change. We want the change that James speaks of here. We want to be more generous, gracious, loving, humble, gentle. But we'd have to admit that this is a battle within all of our lives. And I'd say most of us admit that because we're honest. The rest, <laughs> you might just be God's gift to all of Christianity, but for most of us who deal with this tension, we recognize these things live inside of us. And you and I are faced with a choice daily between worshiping Jesus, the true and living God, or substituting him for something that you feel that you must have in order to be happy something that's more important to your heart than God himself. That's the tension we live in. That's the big idea of this section, that you will look to someone or something to give you meaning, worth, and value. And if it's not the true and living God, if it's not Jesus, then those substitute gods will bring dysfunction of spirit, dysfunction of relationship, 
And that's the counseling session that James finds himself in. That the result of substituting God for another has led to dysfunction. Relationally, personally, socially. And this process of substituting God is known as idolatry. But today, in this little mini session, we're going to find how does idolatry work in our life? How does spiritual, it's also known here, he says, adultery. How does spiritual adultery work in our lives? And how can we be free from it? We'll examine the chapter under three headings. The subtlety of spiritual adultery, the source of spiritual adultery, and the great escape. The subtlety of spiritual adultery, the source, and the great escape. First, the subtlety. I say it's subtle because recently I counseled a friend who had been married for a number of years, had a couple of small children, young couple, and um, he, by the way, um, allowed me to share this anonymously, um, but gave me permission to share his story. His wife committed adultery. she left him um, for another man in their town. They live further away from here. And can you imagine the heartbreak? Some of you know the heartbreak firsthand. Some of you have been the victim or it's been at your hands. The adultery that happens, it begins subtly. You don't wake up one morning and say, I'm going to commit adultery today. But for them, it was subtle. They had both substituted their lovers for another. He, with his personal sin in pornography that he had repented of, as a result, her feeling unloved and wanting to be received and wanting to be cared for, found herself wanting that in the arms of another man. For him later, I asked him how he was doing in his relationship with Jesus, how his heart was doing. And he told me that he was basically living by biblical principles, he said. But he found it hard to trust Jesus. He found it difficult to want to pray, to love God, to trust God. And can you see how both had replaced their lovers with substitutes? And one did so in somewhat of a religious way. He was serving in the church. He was leading youth ministries. He was doctrinally correct. She began to withdraw, found herself uh, pursuing the love of another man. The dysfunction that it brings is heartbreaking, as some of you guys have seen firsthand or some of you guys have experienced, and it's completely shattering the dysfunction that comes from substituting your lover for another. But spiritually, for him, when things began to crumble externally, his moralistic approach to God was no longer rational and he became bitter with God. His moralistic approach to God was no longer rational and he became bitter at God. I've repented, I've been praying, I've been serving. How can this happen? I can no longer trust you. The subtlety here lies in the fact that James is speaking to a group of religious people. 
He says in chapter 3, if you back up a second, verse 16, verse 14, he compares wise living with foolish living when he says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast and be false to the truth. They were boasting in truth. They were cheering on the Ten Commandments. God bless America. They had Christian bumper stickers maybe and maybe had not of this world t-shirts and gear. However, for them, it's subtle because in the same way, most of their morality was a form of self-salvation. It was for them. And James, in verse 4, diagnoses the problem of the heart when he says, adulterous people. Now, for them, who were very externally moral and had been abstaining from the big sins... For them to hear their pastor basically say, you're guilty of whoredom spiritually. It'd be the equivalent of your pastor standing up and saying, the problem is that you're whores spiritually. That's the approach that James is taking with them in chapter 4. Adulteresses. It's a single word in the original language. We have it in our language, you adulterous people. It's one word, adulteresses in the female sense. He classifies all people as, in a sense, or all people in the church, the bride of Christ. And you've committed adultery against Jesus. And it's subtle because of the way that we typically view sin. We typically view sin in terms of breaking rules. And if I'm staying away from the big rules or staying away from breaking the big ones, whatever that might be. It's different for both male and female. That I'm doing better than the next guy and I'm okay. But sin is not merely breaking rules. Sin, as he uses the word here, you have adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship, he's not merely speaking of being a friend, he's speaking of an intimate relationship. You've run after another lover friend. Friendship with the world is enmity with God, hatred against God, and whoever wishes to be a friend of God, still verse 4, makes himself an enemy of God. He says, sin is not merely breaking rules, it's breaking the heart of God. Your husband, he uses this marital metaphor. And in the Bible, there are several metaphors that speak of God's relationship to his people. One is that of a father to his son. We see God as a loving father, leading and correcting and disciplining and being gentle with his children. Another is that of a shepherd with his sheep. Again, leading, guiding. But one of the interesting metaphors that we see of God as James uses in verse 4, is that of a husband to a wife. And there's several places in the Old Testament when God uses this metaphor of an, adulter of an adulteress, adulterer or adulteress towards his people who are running after other lover gods and substituting him for something else or someone else to satisfy a place that only God can fulfill. Jeremiah chapter 2, Ezekiel 16, Hosea, when God's people or humanity as a whole run to other functional gods, God says that they're spreading their arms for another lover. In Jeremiah 2, he actually uses the phrase, you're spreading your legs for every other lover, God. 
in um, this past summer, my wife and I visited New York. There's a, uh, there's a store there in a very avant-garde kind of a uh, in-your-face type of an area that's called religious sex. And it's obviously meant to capture your mind and say, wow, they're crazy. Religious sex, you know, they're different from Christianity is different. But God's been using this term for thousands of years. He's way ahead of the game. He says, the problem, the reason for your dysfunction is you're spreading your arms. You're spreading your legs. You're laying down for other lover gods. And your soul, if you don't know this, is constantly looking for satisfaction, looking for passionate fulfillment. And unless you are running to creator God, you will run to creation, to a person, to a man, to a woman, to a material possession for your fulfillment. How is this subtle in our life? It's subtle both for religious and irreligious people. Here's why where it's subtle in the lives of religious people, like the man in the story that I shared earlier. You can still do your religion and yet your heart be far from Jesus. Why? Because you're still at the center of your own universe. It's still about you. It's still about me. And now through religion, I have simply replaced some other God. I've replaced Jesus with religion, in a sense. There's an irreligious way to be your own savior, but there's also a religious way to be your own savior. Irreligion and unbelief is avoiding God as savior and Lord by living as you want and disregarding God's laws. But religion and moralism is working very hard and being incredibly good and obeying God's laws so that God owes you. So that all of your religion and all of your morality is really a way for you to earn your own self-salvation. So that you can either rely on God for your salvation or you can try to be your own savior, but there's two ways to do that. A religious moral way and an irreligious immoral way. Martin Luther says this, he says, one kind of religious idolatry has to do with moral living itself. The default mode of the human heart is to seek to control God and others through our moral performance because we have lived virtuous lives. We feel that God and other people we meet owe us respect and support, though we may give lip service to Jesus as our example and inspiration. In this idolatry, we're looking to ourselves and our own moral striving for salvation. And what Luther says is that every one of us is going to set up a, some savior. And unless it's Jesus, it might be a very religious life, but at the heart it's a way of using God as an object rather than adoring him as, the, as being beautiful for who he is in himself. And it's using obedience to God to achieve comfort, security, wealth, worth, status. And so therefore our virtue at itself is a way to, for me to use God as a means to an end so that I can get something from God rather than worshiping him for the beauty of who he is in himself. And because God and people are either vehicles now, when I use my morality as a way to get things, I, I see people 
and God either as vehicles to or objects in the way of something that I want. You use people, you use God. We see this in verse 2 when he says, or verse 3, I'm sorry, you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We see it in our self-centered prayer. See, religion is, I pray to get things from God, and my prayer life heats up when things go bad or something's wrong. But the gospel is, I pray to get God. I pray to get him. And answered or unanswered prayers don't affect my love or view or passion of Jesus because I trust him and I'm wanting him for who he is. We see it also in verse 7 in our spiritual pride, using people, using God by our morality. It makes people objects or vehicles. Verse 7 says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will draw near to you. Verse, uh, verse 6 says, therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. There is a self-centered spiritual pride here. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. Nearly all of those evils... It's kind of a long quote, but it's, it's important. Trust me. Nearly all of those evils in the world which people put down to greed or selfishness are really far more the result of pride. It's far more subtle and deadly. Pride can often be used to beat down the simpler vices. Teachers, in fact, often appeal to a boy's pride, or as they call it, self-respect, to make him behave decently. Parents do this too. Many have overcome cowardice or lust or ill temper by learning to think that they're beneath their dignity. That's below me. I'm not going to do that. The devil laughs. He's perfectly content to see you becoming chaste and brave and self-controlled, provided he's setting you up to a dictatorship of pride, just as he would be quite content to see the corns on your foot. Um, yeah. Cured if he was allowed. That's, yeah. In return, so that he could give you cancer. For pride is spiritual cancer. It eat, eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or common sense. In God, you come against something which is, in every respect, immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know that God is that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you don't know God at all. He wants you to be del delightedly humble, feeling the infinite relief of having for once got rid of all the silly nonsense about your own dignity, which makes you unhappy and restless in your life. Whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel we're good, above all, that we're better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on, not by God, but by the devil. If you think you're not conceited, it means you're very conceited indeed. Don't you see that Lewis is saying that you can obey the law of God out of pride or self-salvation, self-righteousness, because that's normal in the world. Lewis basically shows us that pride 
can even or especially grow in the heart of a moral life. And he shows how it's possible to actually increase our pride in our heart as our life becomes more self-controlled, more honest, more courageous, more disciplined. And we see ourselves as not really needing the supernatural grace of God on a constant basis. He says, pride can be as much the reason for keeping the law of God as it can be for violating it. And until we stop looking at sins and begin to look at our sin, pride, self-centeredness, self-salvation, self-righteousness will cause us to think that we don't really need a savior. And as a result, we might be nice, moral people, but we'll be religious people at best. Our hearts aren't stirred up by fire of the love of God. Instead, I'm keeping rules so that I can get something. Now, For the irreligious person, I'll say this quickly, it is subtle for you as well to substitute God because in a way, many irreligious or uh, seekers have a distorted view of, of the soul. That my soul won't I can be the master of my own destiny. I can be the master of my own ship. But you have to understand that your soul desires passion, desires some type of validation, worth, and value, and will run after whatever it can to find worth and value. And we have a faulty view of God. The irreligious person tends to say, well, my God is a loving God. And you Christians talk about God as being just, and in this case, having enemies and being jealous and angry. But don't you understand that love is not real love unless it does at times get angry over injustice in the loved one? Would it be justice for me to stand back and watch my wife be tempted by another and not run after and do all that I could to keep her from going headlong. And likewise, my wife, the same for me. That's not love that doesn't ever at times get angry over sin in the life of the loved one, that doesn't protect, that has no punch. And what we have here is, in both cases, religion or irreligion, the problem, as one man says, is there's two philosophies of life. My life for me or my life for you? And we act this out in a hundred different ways, in small ways every day. My life for me or my life for you? For both the religion, religious person in this chapter and the irreligious person, the seeker, they are the center of their universe. That's why in verse 13, he says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. What's your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we'll live and do this or that. He says, Even in your planning, in your prayer, in your spiritual pride, even in the way that you uh, treat people, all peas, that's all I can come up with. I went to public school, that's all I got. Even in the way that you plan your life, you're at the center. See, he doesn't say don't plan because the Proverbs talk about the wisdom of planning. Planning our life for the the glory of God. The, 
the person in this section is planning for the glory of themselves. Material wealth, blessing for me, all that I can get in this life. He says, don't you know? You don't even know if you're going to be here tomorrow. You don't even know if you're going to make it through the day. Your life is a mist. You look back and it seems like yesterday I was graduating from high school. Today I'm at the end of my life. He says, God is the center. And every gift you have, every relationship that comes into your life, everything in your life is to be redirected for his glory. But instead, you're at the glory. You're at the center of your universe. Now, what's the source of all this? We'll look at this and then we'll look at the, the solution or the, the great escape. The source is in verse 1 and 2 when he says, so again, why do you fight? What's the cause of the dysfunction in your life? It's that your passions are at war within you. Verse 2, you desire, it's the word lust or epithemia, or over-desire. And you don't have, so you murder. You have hatred towards your brother. You covet and can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. The problem, the source lies in idolatry. Your over-desires. You see, the essence of sin is not that we want bad things. The essence of sin is that we want things too badly. We place a good thing in the place of God and make it a God thing, an object of worship. And when you become an obstacle in my way, of me obtaining something that I feel I must have to have value, worth, or happiness, that's when I begin to lash out. That's when I begin to show anger, jealousy, covetousness. And what an idol is, is anything that's more fundamental to you than God for your happiness, your meaning, or your identity. It's any inordinate desire of something good. This means it can be, an idol can be a good thing that we desire more than our acceptance and identity in Jesus. Career, family, achievement, independence, political cause, material possession, people depending on you, power and influence, physical attractiveness, romance, human approval. Let's, let's take it down a notch. Let's say that you, you desire so badly because you've never received the validation from your mom or dad, and you so desire it that when they don't show it to you as an adult, you become angry and lash out at them or at other people. You so desire the respect of your spouse that when they don't show it, which is sin, God, said, God says that we're to respect wives or respect their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. But when I don't receive it, does that give me a license to then respond in sinful anger and lash out in a way that's sinful? 
Because I, at that moment, feel that this will provide my happiness. And when you're not giving it to me, my over-desire is in jeopardy, and I will do whatever it takes to get it. Martin Luther says something interesting. He says, All those who do not at all times trust in his favor, grace, goodwill, but seek his favor in other things or in themselves, do not keep the first commandment and practice real idolatry, even if they were to do the works of other commands, for the chief work is not present, without which all others are nothing but a mere sham, show and pretense, with nothing to back of back of them. If we doubt or do not believe that God is gracious to us and is pleased with us, or if we presumptuously expect to please him only through and after our works, then it's pure deception, outwardly honoring God, but inwardly setting up a self as a fa for ourselves false saviors. What Martin Luther says in the treatise in good, concerning good works is this. The reason why we ever sin, the reason why we show sinful anger, lash out in, uh, we have covetousness. I, I want what you have. Um, uh, you want another person's spouse, child, job, life, career trajectory, whatever it might be. The reason is, is that we fail to keep the first command, which is what? Love your Lord. In this case, you shall have no other gods before me. When we fail to keep the first command of not worshiping the true and living God, we then break every other command, Martin Luther says. Tim Keller popularizes this, theory, this teaching in his book, Counterfeit Gods. I highly recommend it. But we run after other lover gods whenever we fail to worship the true and living God. So it becomes a gospel issue, a worship issue in my life. Not merely external. Now, Idols create inordinate emotions in our life. This is how we can tell if an idol is operating in my heart, if there's an over-desire that's causing this anger, causing me to sin in a way that's against God. If you're angry, you ask, is there something too important to me? Something that I'm telling myself that I have to have, is that why I'm angry because I'm being blocked from having something I think is a necessity when it's not? If you're fearful or badly worried, you can ask, is there something, Jesus, that's too important for me? Something that I'm telling myself I have to have. Is that why I'm so scared? Because if it's removed from me or threatened in my life, it'll remove my worth or my value or my security. If you're despondent or hating yourself, you ask, Lord, is there something too important to me? Something I'm telling myself I have to have. Is that why I'm so down? Because I've lost or failed at something which I think is a necessity when it's not. A good example would be, as a father, I desire my children to grow up, to love Jesus, to honor authority. That's a good thing. But if I desire that more than Jesus, if that becomes my ultimate thing, rather than trusting Jesus, doing my job as a father, loving my daughter, loving my children, and training them and disciplining them to love Jesus, but now it becomes the, th the very thing that I have to have. When they don't show me that, I then begin to manipulate them to obey or become very controlling or explode with anger, depressed, 
But if they obey, and if they're really good, I become self-righteous. I become condescending towards other people. Because that is the very thing that I'm living for. That's my functional God, not my, my standing in the grace of Jesus. It works the same way in our marriage. It works the same way at work. This can happen so easily for me. I find myself the other day coming home telling my wife, man, I'm so competitive. And I, I, can, I can think of over several things in my life that have functioned as a result of pure competition in my life. Wanting to do better than another person. Why? Because my image to me at times can become the ultimate. And if that's in jeopardy, I become angry. I become frustrated. We say frustrated. Now, what's the solution to this? Because every human being must have an ultimate God by which all other choices are made and values are judged. We all will offer ourselves to something. As a result, we come into covenant service, relationship, a marriage, so to speak, or we run after other lover gods to satisfy that. The key to freedom. This is where the preacher typically tells you, you got to love Jesus more, try harder, right? That's not the key to freedom. The key to freedom is not to rah-rah cheer yourself up back into obedience to God because then that can become then a thin layer of self-righteousness. The key to freedom, as John, uh, John Stott says in his book, The Cross of Christ, is to see the substitution of Jesus in our place because we have been unfaithful to him. He substitutes himself in our place on the cross, taking our wrath as enemies of God, he makes himself the enemy of God on the cross, taking our sin upon himself. Look what John Stott says. He says, the conceit or the concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin <clears throat> is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong only to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. It's the gospel. The key to freedom from dysfunction of spiritual adultery or substitution of gods in my life is the gospel. To hide it deep in my heart, to see Jesus as the one who has substituted himself for me in my place, to see him as the faithful partner Although I've been unfaithful, although I've lived for and run after other gods on a continual basis, my faith in Jesus alone is what sanctifies me and saves me. Do you get that? First, three things. According to James, we have to warm ourselves at the fire of God's grace and love. Every day, look what he says here, verse 6. 
It says, back at verse 5, he yearns jealously over the spirit he's made to dwell in us. After saying, don't you know you're at enmity with God? Uh, You're committing adultery against God. What does he say? Verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And that God desires you to draw near to him. So submit to him because he wants to draw near to you. And what I find here is that because we were unfaithful, not because we were righteous in ourselves, Jesus, fully knowing that you would be an unfaithful spouse, refused to be without you. And in essence said, there's no way. I will run after you and over my dead body, nobody else will seduce you. That's the root of holiness, continually running back to the love of God. In Ephesians chapter 4, chapter 5, it says, Husbands are to love their wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water by the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Why? So that she, you, would be holy before him and blameless. You think of a bride who walks down the aisle on her wedding day. She never looks that way ever again, basically, right? She, she spent hours putting on fake things and, and, putting, and doing herself right. Fake eyelashes I'm talking about. And she walks down the aisle and she's without blemish without spot. That is the way that God sees you. Why? Because you're really righteous, you're really good, you're really moral? No, because of your faith in Jesus. And while you and I have pursued other lovers and were enemies of God, Romans 5, 8 says in answer to James 4 that Christ died for us at that point, giving us his faithfulness. Not only now do we have a clean slate, which is one part of being justified, He has given us his standing in God. Jesus' perfect record has become ours. Now God sees you. Listen to this. How does God see you? Based on your faith in the costly grace of Jesus. He sees you as one who always does the things that are pleasing to him because that's what Jesus did. He sees you as one who's so focused on accomplishing his will and work that doing so is your daily food because that was Jesus' work. He sees you as one who doesn't seek your own will but seeks his will instead. The Father sees you as one who doesn't seek to receive glory and praise and respect and honor. No longer that. I'm in Christ now. When he sees me, he sees one who seeks the glory and honor of God at all times. He sees you as having always kept all of his commandments. He sees you as your sins being washed away from yesterday, today, listen, and tomorrow. God the Father sees you as one who loves others and lays down your life for others on a consistent basis because that's what Jesus did, and you're in Jesus now. He sees you by your faith in Christ as one who lives in such a way that your life brings holiness and joy to others because that's what Jesus did. And if you're sitting there saying, 
There's no way. How can that be? It's too good to be true. You don't understand my thoughts, my heart, my deeds, my words. You're now beginning to get the grace of God. He gives more grace. Because that's what Paul says in Romans chapter, chapter 5. He says, God gives a greater amount of grace than your sin. And Romans 6, anticipating the question of his hearers, he says, I know what you're thinking. You're going to ask, well, should we therefore sin more so grace should abound? He says, no way. In light of the grace of God, it causes me to want to obey. If you're saying it's too good to be true, you're right. That's the good news of the gospel. That's grace. Now, one person says that ongoing failure in our sanctification, that slow process of becoming more like Christ, is the direct result of failing to remember God's love for us in the gospel. If we lack the comfort and assurance that his love and cleansing are meant to supply, our failures will handcuff us to yesterday's sins, and we won't have faith or courage to fight against them or to love God, for that's meant to empower this war. There's a place in Lord of the Rings. I've been reading Lord of the Rings. Me and Laz are, are uh, in a book club. There's only two men. But uh, <laughs> it's kind of a lonely book club, actually, because we never talk. Um, but in Lord of the Rings, there's a place where the little hobbit Pippin is standing at the gate of the city of Rohan. And the city's about to be overtaken by uh, the evil dark lords. And there's tons of these men riding into the city. And as Pippin, this little hobbit, completely helpless, sees them riding into the city, about to face their doom, knowing that there's no hope, he hears horns. And as he hears the horns, the riders of Rohan, the, 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 the men, valiant warriors, come on their horses, and they come and they completely defeat the evil dark lords. And from that day, it says that every time that Pippin would hear the horn, he would stop and it would just cause him to weep because it was the day he always remembered that he was saved from the enemy. You need to continually go back to and reflect on the deep love of God, on the grace of God that has saved you, not your moral standing. It's faith alone that saves. And then our faith in Christ alone produces a salvation that has works that accompany it. Not the other way around. Faith but plus Jesus, that's everything. I've been reading a book by a female author. I really read female authors just because... I'm a pig like that, and I just feel like maybe the man is going to pack a good punch for me. This woman has been melting my heart. You know, I'm crying like a, like a teenage prom queen in and and my, my living room, and I'm just saying to my wife, the love of God, it, it motivates me. When's the last time you, you dwelt on the love of God? The name of the book is Because He Loves Me. Elise Fitzpatrick is the author. It's incredible. I highly recommend it. When's the last time you just sat and you listened to the horns of the love of God for you? One way we can do that is through communion. Remembering Jesus saying, I'm breaking my body for you. I'm giving you my blood. 
Now, the last thing, I've got to close, I've got to hurry, is to personalize your understanding of sin. First, we, we warm ourselves at the fire of God's love, verse 6, and then uh, verse 7 through 9 tells us that we are to personalize our understanding of sin. What does this mean? It means we repent of idols. We expose them for what they are. That means that, as Luther says, all of life is one of repentance. And any failure of actual righteousness is always a failure to live in, accord, in accordance with our imputed righteousness of Jesus. That means dwelling on his finished work. So I repent not only of my good, de- of the things that I've done wrong, but of the things that I've done that have been good, but I've done them out of motivation for myself. And I come to Jesus as it says in verse seven, it says, submit yourself therefore to God, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. As I come to Jesus in repentance, I come to him not to uh, try to beat myself up, but this implies relationship. It implies I'm coming to you, God, because I've hurt your heart, and I don't want to hurt your heart because you love me so much. Like a husband coming to a wife and saying, I'm sorry for what I've done to you, for the hurtful words, for the things I've, I've done. I'm sorry. I've been there and sitting down with my wife and you begin to feel the emotion because you know this person loves you so much. That's the basis of of our repentance. And lastly, we think on the upside down principle of the universe when it says in verse 6 and 7 and verse 13 through 16, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore. If you seek to uh, to, uh, gain your life, you're going to lose it. Humble yourself. The way up in God's kingdom is the way down through humble service to Jesus, yielding your life to him, yielding your life to others in your home is where it begins. And James, as the counselor, comes and says, I know where the cause of war and fighting is in your home, in your heart. You put yourself at the center. Look at the love of God. Look at how Jesus lives out, verse 6, 7, and 8, for you. He draws near to the Father, he, he himself, so that you can draw near. He's rejected from his father on the cross so you could always have acceptance from his father. He resists the devil because of the, all the times that we fail to resist the devil. He resists the devil in the wilderness, in the garden. He does it on your behalf. He's fighting for you. Humble yourselves. Repent of idols. Repent of those things that you think will bring you happiness that are the meaning of your life. And then look at the upside-down principle at the heart of the gospel, how Jesus empties himself out for you and I, and that we're called to empty ourselves out to him, saying, here's my life. And if you're here today and you're the seeker, you say, Jesus, I need you. There's other substitute gods that have run my life into dysfunction. I want to substitute them by looking at your substitution on my behalf. I put my trust in you, my faith in you for forgiveness. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We are completely open and honest to you right now. and We say, there is no righteousness in me of myself. All my righteousness is in you. And all the vain things that charm me most... I sacrifice them to your cross, Lord. 
As we take communion, let it be the sounding board of the grace of God, the love of God that calls you to him, to draw near to him, not in fear, but in relationship.